chapter 2. I'm going through my annual uh, sinus bout, but I'm getting over it. I'm in the last stages. So, sinus. Somebody said, what's he getting over? I'm getting over a sinus. Okay, we're in the Gospel of John, and we are, are in chapter 2. We have covered the prologue, which was chapter 1, which introduces a lot of the themes in the Gospel of John. And then last week, we saw how Jesus called his disciples, and uh, they began to follow him. That was two weeks ago. And then he turned the water into wine. And now we are at John chapter 2 and verse 13. John chapter 2 and verse 13. Which is the story, if you have a heading in your Bible, it probably says something like, Jesus cleanses the temple. And uh, that is really a misnomer because Jesus doesn't cleanse anything. Uh, actually, what he does is he clears out the temple. So, in that sense, it's more like an exorcism that is a, than a cleansing. In fact, the words, like in verse 15, where it says, He made a whip and he drove them out. You see that? That phrase, drove them out or cast them out, is the exact same Greek word that's translated, uh, that's used in the exorcism passages, where he says he drives out the demons, he drove them out. And he's going to exorcise this temple, but not of demons, but of human beings who oppose God, even though they're in the temple and it seems like they're serving God. Jesus knows them. He knows their, their motives, and so he casts them out. So today we're going to uh, divide our passage this way. In verse 13, we're going to have our introduction or our setting. We're going to call that the setting or the introduction. Then verses 14 through 17, we see Jesus' actions. Jesus' actions. And uh, 17 ends with his disciples remembering. Do you see that? Then his disciples remembered. Okay? So that phrase, the disciples remembered, ends that second section. Then verses 18 through 22, we see Jesus' authority. Jesus' authority. And you'll see that this section ends also with those same words. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered. you see that? See how that's repeated? Okay. And then the final section, verses 23 through 25, which ends the chapter, is sort of an aftermath. It's like a postscript. Okay? So with that, let's look at the setting. Verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, in the previous passage, we saw that he was in Galilee. So, this is the setting. The setting is Jerusalem and the Passover. Uh, the Passover was one of three feasts that was required uh, of all Jewish males to celebrate. And if you were 20 years or older, you had to celebrate the Passover. If you lived within a 15 or 20 mile range, radius of Jerusalem, you had to go to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover. So, when Jesus arrives, there's over 100,000 people in the city. And it is just bursting at the seams. 
And uh, some people say there was as many as uh, 250,000. That's probably an exaggeration. But just imagine what it's like, you know, crowds of people, activity, sounds. It's like going to the state fair, you know, on the most popular day of the year. I mean, just people are milling around. There are the sounds. There are barkers, you know, calling out, trying to get people's attention. And that's what you have here. Now, the Passover was celebrated as uh, a memorial to the Exodus event. After God led the people of Israel out of Egypt, he told them to celebrate a Passover once a year. By the way, I've done an extensive study on Passover in the Old Testament. As far as I can tell, in the Old Testament times, although they were required to practice a Passover, many Jews didn't do it. Uh, probably less than five times in the Old Testament you find that they are practicing the Passover. They were very disobedient people. And that's why they always got themselves in trouble with God. Okay? But now they're back in Jerusalem and they are celebrating the Passover and Jesus goes there. Now, <clears throat> I want you to notice something. Notice John has to explain to his readers what's going on. Do you see that in verse 13? He says, now the Passover of the, of the Jews was at hand. Why would he have to say that to his audience? The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Why would he have to say that to his audience? Because ah, there are a lot of Gentiles in that audience. And when is John writing? Ah, 90, 95 AD. And guess what? The temple's destroyed when? 70 AD. He hadn't been the temple around for 25 years. He's not writing to people who are living in the Jerusalem area. He's writing to people who are living up in Turkey. They might not even know there's ever been a Passover. So he has to give an explanation. They may have heard of the word, but he has to explain. This is something the Jews celebrated. Does that make sense? Okay. Now also, I want you to notice, it says Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay. This deals with elevation, not direction. Elevation, not direction. Geographically, Galilee is 80 miles north of Jerusalem. So Galilee is up. What direction would Jerusalem be geographically? Down. So it says he went up to Jerusalem. Now how do you go up to Jerusalem when you're already up? Because it's, it's not talking geographically. It's talking topographically. Jerusalem is elevated above sea level higher than the, than the region of Galilee. And so he's literally having to go up the incline as he moves toward Jerusalem. And that's just the phrase that all Jews use. We're going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is always up. No matter where you're located geographically, Jerusalem is up topographically. Does that make sense? So that's the setting. Now let's look at Jesus' actions. Verse 14. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. So, when he gets into the temple, instead of finding worship, he finds merchandising. It looks like it's a flea market of some kind. A bazaar. Notice the kinds of people he finds in the temples. Number one, he finds merchants. Look at that. People who sold things. They sold oxen, sheep, and doves. These were sacrifices. Every Jew on Passover had to go to the temple and make a sacrifice. Now, you had a choice. You could bring your sacrifice with you, 
Now, Jesus is coming from Galilee, 80 miles away. If he wants to bring a sacrifice, guess what he has to do? Yeah, he has to get the leash and say, come on, goat, come on, oxen. You know. 80 miles, you don't want to do that, do you? No. So what do you do? Well, for convenience, some merchants set up stalls where they had animals that you could buy for sacrifices. That makes good sense, doesn't it? The problem's not that they're selling sacrifices. That's just wise business. It's where they're doing it. They're doing it in the temple. They should be doing it outside the temple. They're doing it in the, in the holiest place, in the holiest city in the world. And they're desecrating this temple. That's what gets Jesus upset. The second group he finds are bankers. It says, verse 14, money changers doing business. Now, every Jew also, on, during the Passover, had to pay a temple tax. Once a year, you had to pay a temple tax. You had to pay it with a special silver coin. A coin that people didn't keep in their pockets. People used other kinds of coins in their pockets. But when you paid your temple tax, you had to pay it with a certain silver coin, which the average person didn't possess. And so, these bankers set up tables in the temple, and you can take your, your dollars, in a sense, and say, well, give me silver coins so I can do it. And you, you'd say, how much? And we'll say, well, we're going to give you this dollar silver coin, and you put out the dollar, and they said, wait a second, there's a 12.5% commission. And so you had to pay an extraordinary amount for that. Okay? So that's the second group. Jesus is very upset over that group that are making profits. Not that they're making profits. Hey, it's okay to make a profit. There's nothing wrong with that. It's where it's happening. See? That's where the emphasis is. It's in the temple. So he's not concerned about the business as such, but he's concerned about where it's happening. So Jesus is infuriated. Look what he does in verse 15. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. Now, this is a what we call prophetic boldness. This is the act of a like an Old Testament prophet who comes in and he just the righteousness of God just falls. And uh, so he just disperses the crowd. He pick, picks up this whip. Now it doesn't say he ever hits a human being with that whip. You notice that? Doesn't say he hits an animal with the whip. But I imagine Jesus took that whip and like a master lion tamer, he walked into this cage with these ferocious people and he cracked that whip. And boy, that got everybody's attention. And he turned those tables over and man, they just began to flee. They ran as fast as they could because a prophet had come in their midst. That's what it says at the end of verse 15. He poured out the changer's money, and he overturned the table. Now you can imagine what that's like. All this, these silver coins go on the ground, and what are people going to do? Well, they're going to try to grab a few before they get out of there. So I imagine all the kids in the neighborhood probably shut down there and start picking these up. And, uh, but you know they leave them, most of them, and they are driven out of the temple. Now look what he does. <clears throat> As the money goes everywhere, and the people scurry out of the temple. Verse 16. 
He said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Now, isn't that interesting? Because in verse 15, he drove out the sheep and the oxen. Guess what he doesn't drive out? He doesn't drive out the dove sellers. He speaks to them. And he speaks a harsh word to them. Now, why the dove sellers? What is it about the dove sellers? They, now, you know, these guys have doves. That means they have to have cages with the birds in them. These are sacrifices. These are sacrifices that the poorest of the poor have to buy. You, if you were poor, you couldn't take an oxen and sacrifice it. You couldn't take a goat or a sheep and sacrifice it. You would go out and you would buy a little bird, two for a penny, ducks. They're not worth hardly anything. You know. and, uh, but these guys, they were charging a lot. Now, a poor person, of course, would much rather just find a dove in his neighborhood, pick it up, put it in his robe pocket, you know, carry it to the temple, offer it as a sacrifice. But you know what would happen if you did that? When the priest looked at your dove, he'd say, oh, that's got a blemish on it. You can't offer a blemish to dove. And so guess what? You'd have these dove sellers, and they had pre inspected doves. Of course, you had to pay a premium price. And so Jesus is really upset with the dove sellers because they are exploiting the poorest of the poor. That's what God's really upset about. It's one thing to desecrate the temple, and he's upset about that. It's another thing to exploit people who have no choice but to be exploited be offended. And he says to these dove sellers, take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Now notice he calls the temple my father's house. Um, which means Jesus is the father's son. He speaks of a special relationship with the father. And therefore because the son, he's the father's son, he has the right to clear out the father's house. Because he's a co-owner, in a sense, of the temple. And this is so Jesus, with his prophetic action, just clears out the temple. Now we come to the end of this first section, where the disciples remember something. So look what it says in verse 17. Then the disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Now this is a quote, a direct quote from Psalm 69.9, where it speaks of David, who has to flee for his life. And he flees for his life, not because he's done anything wrong, or he's a bad king. He flees for his life because of his zeal for God. And his desire to build God's house for God's glory. And he pays a price for that. And so that's what that phrase, zeal for my house, has eaten me up. And, and they, after Jesus, you know, probably has died and he's resurrected, they think back on these events and they think upon this verse and they apply it to Jesus. It's because of Jesus overturning the tables in the temple that's ultimately going to lead to his death. It sets him off as an enemy of the religious establishment. And why do they kill him? Not because he's a sinner, 
not because he's evil, but because he had zeal for God's house, and they really didn't care about God's house. It showed them up in a sense. Does that make sense? So now we come to this next section, Jesus' authority. And uh, we'll see that his authority is questioned in verse 18. So when Jesus, when the Jews answered, so the Jews answered, after they drives them out, they, they, they now respond. And they said to him, what sign do you do? What sign do you show to us since you do these things? What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Uh, they're calling Jesus to account. They don't say he doesn't have a right to do these things. They just say, prove that you have the right to do these things. See? Show us a sign by which you do these things. See? Uh, prove you know, that you have a right to do these things. Because they believed that in the end times, there was going to come on the scene a messenger from God who was going to come into the temple and declare the truth. They believed that this was going to happen. And so here Jesus comes in like a prophet, clears out the temple, and they say, well, if you're the guy that's supposed to do this, give us a sign. Perform a miracle. Prove to us that you're going to do it. Now, in order to understand that passage, you need to go to, Gal uh, to uh, Malachi chapter 3. So go back to Malachi. It's the last book in your Old Testament. And I'll show you the prophecy that one day God's messenger was going to come and enter the temple. This would be Malachi chapter 3. And when you get there, look at verse 1. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. So here's what it says. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now you see, that's that's the message. You have to be John the Baptist, wouldn't it? That's John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Look at that. See? And the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. So they were expecting... God to send his messenger, a Lord whom they were to follow, into the temple. So these religious leaders, when they say to him in verse, 19, uh, verse 18, what sign do you show us since you've done these things? They're not questioning his action. They're questioning his authority. They know somebody's going to do it. Can you prove that you have the authority to do this? Give us a sign that legitimizes that you're God's authorized man. You see that? And they believed, you know, that, that God's end-time prophet or God's end-time Lord or God's end-time messenger would have be able to do signs and wonders. And they say, well, give us a sign. And that will accredit you. We will recognize you as such. So we get Jesus' response in verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, now I'm going to throw in a little phrase here. You want a sign? Okay, here it is, right? Now watch. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now that's a command. There's two things here. There's a command and there's a statement. 
Here's the command. You destroy this temple. Here's the statement. And three days later, I'll raise it up. Okay. Now, if you take this literally, Jesus is calling their bluff. He says, do you want a sign? Okay, I'll give you one. Destroy the temple. And here will be the sign. Three days later, I'll raise it up. He's calling their bluff. If you take it literally. Now that would really be a sign, wouldn't it? A whole building crashed down and Jesus raises it up in three, three days. That would really be a sign. Okay? Um, but look at verse 20. Look how they respond. Then the Jews said to him, What's taken 46 years to build this temple? And you'll raise it up in three days? Come on. They begin to mock Jesus. Now, remember what this temple is. This is Solomon's temple. This is the great temple that David saw in a vision to build for God. And it was completed by Solomon. And then the Babylonians came in and they just sort of destroyed it. And, and then in the 6th century B.C., the Jews were allowed to go back to Jerusalem and they, they rebuilt the temple. So this is that temple that has been rebuilt. And then Herod the king came on the scene. Remember, Augustus Caesar appoints Herod to be the king of the Jews. Herod is a half-breed Jew who works, says he's a Jew, but he works for Rome. And he begins a building project to reconstruct the temple in all of its glory, or I should say all for all of his glory. And he starts building this temple, restructuring the temple in 20 B.C. And he's been building this temple now for 46 years. It's like the great national cathedral in Washington, D.C. I was ordained originally in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. And when I was ordained in 1972, before some of you were born, I know that, <laughs> that temple was still, that, that cathedral was still being constructed. It was under construction for 100 years. And they were still working on it. And it wasn't finished until another 20 years. And then Washington had an earthquake. And they, it, it affected the structure. Well, this temple has now been under reconstruction, rebuilt, expanded by Herod for 46 years. Started it in 20 B.C. Now you can, you can pinpoint the date of this event right here. Now there's no year zero. So 46 years later, 20 years B.C., and now you need another 26 years. So what, what's the date here? be A.D. 26 or 27, something like that, right? You still with me? I hope you are. Okay, so what's the bottom line? The bottom line is it's taken us a long time to be, build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days, and they mock Jesus. Now John interjects something. Our writer interjects something in verse 21. Look what he says. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. He wasn't speaking literally. He was speaking metaphorically. He was talking about if you destroy my body, and the Jews did. They put him to death. But what did he do? Raised it up three days later. That's the sign that he's going to give them. Remember they said, the Jews seek a sign. And he said, the only sign that will be given to them is the sign of Jonah. If Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be. And then on the third day he will rise. 
So that's the only sign that he offers them, and it's not going to be a sign that's fulfilled for another three years. So, we know when the temple is destroyed, the real temple, it's not the Jews who destroyed the temple, is it? You know who destroys the Jewish temple, Herod's temple? The Romans destroy it in 70 AD. The Jews rebel against Rome, and they start what's called the Jewish Wars. Lasts from 66 AD to 70 AD. And Rome just comes in, they just trash the temple. The only thing standing of that temple now is the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. And they go in and they destroy that temple. It's not the Jews who destroyed the temple. Jesus wasn't talking about the Jews destroying that temple. Talk about the temple of his body. And when John writes it, in 95 AD, the temple's been destroyed for 25 years already. And Jesus has been raised. And we know in John's Gospel, chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Word became flesh, became a man, Jesus, and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, in his body, Jesus' body was the temple of God. That's where God dwelt. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. When Jesus walked the earth, it was God was dwelling in him. His body was the temple. And then they destroyed that temple. And he raised it up. And he went to heaven. And he poured out the Spirit. And he included us. And now the church is the temple. God dwells in us. Christ being the chief cornerstone of this new temple that's being built. And so, John's audience recognizes that all these things happened way back when. And when they're reading this, they recognize that they're now the temple of God, and God dwells in their midst. And then verse 22 says, Therefore, when he was risen. Now we're going to jump ahead a little bit. Therefore, when he was risen from the dead. Here it is again. His disciples remembered. that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus said. Now notice, there's two key verbs here, isn't there? First, the word remembered. His disciples remembered something. What did they remember? What he had said to them. They remembered this passage. Three days I will raise up my body. Look at this. There's a second verb. And they believed. you see that? What did they believe? They believed, number one, the Scripture. What Scripture? Psalm 69.9, which we just quoted a few moments ago. And what else did they believe? The Word which Jesus had said. Notice they put Jesus' Word, the Word that He said, right on par with the Scriptures. Jesus' Word and the Scriptures have equal authority. And they embraced it, they remembered it, and they, they believed it. They committed themselves to Jesus' words and to the Scriptures. Does that make sense? Okay, now we come to the last section, the aftermath. Okay, look at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, and Passover and the feast were part and parcel of the same event. The feast was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a seven-day affair. So during, Jesus went to Jerusalem and he stayed in Jerusalem during the Passover and the feast seven-day period. So verse 23 says, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and during the feast for those seven days, many 
believed in his name, when they saw the signs, plural, which he had done. Evidently, during that seven-day period, people came up that were sick, and he healed them. He performed miracles and committed and did signs, which miracles and wonders, and, and many. And as a result of that, during that seven-year, seven-day period, many people believed on him. It says, verse twenty-three, they believed in his name. Now we've got a problem. <clears throat> Every time you see the word "believe," don't think of saving faith. Okay. Believe does not necessarily mean saving faith. It can, but doesn't necessarily mean that. What determines is always the context. Belief can simply mean intellectual belief. It can mean assenting to facts. They said, oh, he must be the Messiah because he does these things. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're saved. You know, the Bible says the demons, what? Believe, and they tremble, but they're not saved. So every time you see the word believe, don't think of saving faith. You have to determine what the context is, okay? Saving belief is a belief where you commit yourself loyally to another individual. You surrender yourself. Uh, that's different, okay? So these people are believing in a, in a very surface way. Now look at verse 24. They believed, but look at this. Jesus did not commit himself to them. You see that? Jesus did not commit himself to them. Uh, they believed on Jesus, but he didn't believe in them. Okay? He didn't commit himself to them. Why not? Well, here's the reason. Look at the end of verse 24. Because he knew all men. He knew all men. He looks into our hearts, and he knows exactly what's in our hearts. He knows the condition of our hearts. And it's not enough to say, I believe. Hey, remember the parable of the four, four soils? Sower goes out and he spreads the seed. Some fall by the wayside. You know, it ends up out in the highway. Others fall on hard ground, where it just has a skip of dirt, and guess what? It springs up to life immediately. Others fall on ground, and it comes up, and then on the skiffy ground, remember what happens? It comes up right away, but then the sun comes out, and it does what? It scorches it, dies. And the other falls on ground, it comes up, and then the thorns come and choke it. And then some fall on good ground, comes up, and <coughs> has fruit. Those soils are the condition of the heart. Sometimes the gospel is preaching and it hits and bounces right off. Sometimes it takes root, very shallow. And then the Bible says, but the riches of the world and the pleasures of the world come in and choke it out. And others take root and it says, and then the cares and the worries of the world come and it falls by the wayside. So Jesus knows the condition of a person's heart. Just because they walk forward down an aisle and say, I believe, doesn't mean that they have saving faith. It just means this gospel's taken root some way or another. In time, you will determine whether they're saved. Is there fruit in time? So Jesus doesn't commit himself to them because he knows their hearts, it says. Look at verse 25. And he didn't have any need of anyone that anyone should testify of man. Uh, that's uh, He doesn't have any need for... 
a human being to say he's the Messiah. He doesn't have, he doesn't have, look, the worst thing you want to do is have lost people testify who you are. By the way, the word man there, where it says, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man, it's actually literally the man, the son of man. He didn't need anybody testifying who he was, especially these kinds of people. Look what else it says in verse 25. Why, does he, why doesn't he want that kind of testimony from anybody? Here it is, right at the end of verse 25. For he knew what was in man. He looks right into your heart. So he, he meets this guy named Simon. He looks right into his heart. He sees his face. He said, you're going to be called a rock. He meets this other guy named Nathaniel. And he looks into his heart and he says, a man in whom there is no guile. Come and follow me. He commits himself to Nathaniel. He commits himself to Peter. He looks inside the, the heart of Nicodemus. Next chapter, Nicodemus is going to come on the scene. Comes to Jesus by night. Jesus starts teaching him. Nicodemus says, what are you talking about? So you're the master teacher of Israel. You don't know these things. He sees right through Nicodemus. He doesn't commit himself to Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus doesn't commit himself to Christ. Although he says, I believe. Sometimes there's a quickening. It looks like belief. It looks like salvation. Especially in the heat of a revival. But it's not the real thing. R.A. Torrey, the great Bible teacher of yesteryear, said, there is a quickening that is short of regeneration. Quickened, yes. Regenerated, no. So Jesus doesn't commit himself to these people because he knows what's in man. And next week, we'll see one of those men. And look who he is. It's Nicodemus in chapter 3 and verse 1. A man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, Rabbi, we know, we know, we know, we know. And you know what Jesus says? You don't know anything. <laughs> and you'll see how Jesus deals with Nicodemus next week. So Jesus is God's authorized end-time messenger. He's the one, the messenger of the new covenant, as Malachi says. And uh, he comes into the Father's house and he just casts the people right out of the Father's house. They made a mockery of the Father's house. Don't need that temple anymore. I'm the temple. God now dwells in me. Don't need the old covenant anymore because he's establishing a new covenant through his death and his resurrection. Don't need to follow the Passover anymore. Because Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is our Passover. See? And John's audience, reading this in 95 AD, understand it clearly. That that Old Testament system that many of their Jewish relatives are still trying to hold on to. The law, the sacrifices, the feast days, the fasting. John's letting them know that that system has gone by the wayside, and Jesus is the one that we're to look to. And only as we commit ourselves to him, not to the law, 
and we find saving grace. Lord, we thank you for your word. Help us to take it to heart. Help us to examine our own lives. When we look at our own lives, do we see the fruit of regeneration of life? Or have we experienced a quickening short of regeneration? So often, Lord, we even deceive ourselves because the heart is desperately wicked and who can know it. But here we learn you know it. And you know our condition. Oh, Lord, bring us to the point where we do repent, we die to self, we commit ourselves totally to you and your church. In Christ's name.